Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of drifting. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling, and welcome to season four of Sightseeing Japan. I'm excited to be back. Me too. We got some pretty fun topics picked out for this season, I think. Including today. Yeah, today we got a good one. We're going to get right into it, or should we, uh, should we talk about Patreon a little bit first? Uh, yeah, we got some new stuff on Patreon that we did during the break between seasons. We do. There is a behind-the-scenes video where you can see a little tour of the studio. We also have a Q&A episode on there where we answered some of your questions. Yeah, that was fun. We got some really good questions. I was happy with that. Yeah. Uh, we're also creeping closer to our goal, our first goal of 25 patrons. And we will do a, another Japanese stories or legends episode. And what about when we hit 50, Paul? What are we doing then? Oh, then we're doing the hentai episode. Can't wait. That one's been a long time coming. <laughs> For good reason. <laughs> yeah, we're slowly making our way there. Uh, if you're not a member on Patreon, now is a great time to join. You get early access to every episode. You get access to all that exclusive content, the, the stuff that's already up there and the stuff that we make in the future. And there's even more stuff for the higher tiers. So take a look. The lowest tier is only $2 a month. You could even sign up right now on your phone. Just scroll down to the episode notes, click the link. It's that easy. And let me also take this opportunity to give a shout out to our Shogun level patrons. We got Wesley C., Paula, Nicholas McKibben, Kevin Harris, and our new shogun, Brady K. Thank you guys so much for the support. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so what are we talking about today, Paul? Cars. I like cars. Do you consider yourself a car guy, Paul? Yes and no, but yes. I think we both kind of are. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was like into cars, but I never took the time to like learn a lot about how they work. I just Always thought they were really pretty. Yeah. And fun. Fun, yeah. And, you know, fast is always good. Yeah. I love cars. I love the technology. I love the power. I love the feel. I love how amazingly great they can engineer some cars. I guess the only reason I'd hesitate to say I'm a car person is because I'm kind of frugal. And like all the cars that are really nice, I'm like, I would never pay that much money for a slightly nicer car when I could get one for a third of the price or half the price. Yeah. You know, I remember as a kid, I was really into the Dodge Viper RT10. That was, I mean, that was a beautiful car. Yeah. And I remember saying something like, when I'm older, I'm going to buy one of those. And like, who cares if it's expensive? I'll just like live in it. And nowadays I'm like, no, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> there was a time in my early 20s where I was like, as soon as I have enough money, I'm buying a WRX I'm getting new tires every week, and I'm drifting like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and then I got money, and I was like, I'm not going to waste it all on that. We also live in America, right? So we both have had cars our whole adult lives because we need to, basically, to get anywhere around here. Uh, a couple years ago, my car broke down. 10-minute car ride to work. I checked the bus schedule, three buses, two and a half hours oh, yeah. for, to, for my 10-minute car ride. It's just not even feasible. Yeah, it's a shame that we don't have a decent public transportation system in most places. Yeah. Also, I'd say we both used to work with cars. I sold cars. 
when I was college what? age. What I worked I? at oh, a car dealership. I drove cars. Yeah. I almost forgot. You I was were a valet. valet for a few years. I drove some cool so cars, you've, actually. You've driven thousands of different of cars, and so have I, honestly, probably on the lot, too. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought so about we're, that. So we're both tied into cars a lot. Yeah. But what I thought was really interesting about the research in this is we're going to see, like, the USA and Japan have very different car cultures, and a big part of that is that Japan does have such a great public transportation system most places. People don't really rely on cars in Japan the way they do here. Yeah, and you're much more likely to have one car per family than one car per adult, which is more of the norm for a lot of America. Yep. What I think is interesting, too, you talked about the public transportation. The fact that when you think of Japan, one of the first things you think of is trains and public transport, but also one of the first things you think of is cars. That's true. I mean, they dominated the car market in a lot of the world for a long time. I mean, they have a reputation for making really reliable cars. Yeah. They're super popular all over the place. They're just dominating the entire transportation sector. You can say that. I also got into Japanese cars a bit because I'm a huge Initial D fan. Oh, man. Yeah. It's in my top five all-time animes. I just love it. You introduced me to Initial D, and I mean, it's great. There's there's nothing else you have to say about it. It's just <laughs> it's a classic. Right. And I mean, what I loved about it when you got me into it was how it teaches you so much about driving. It does. That you never really thought about, probably. Yeah. Just very briefly, for anyone not in the know, it's a 90s Japanese anime about drifting and mountain pass street racing in the middle of the night. Super cool, super fun. You just fall in love with the cars. Yeah, it's cool. Like There are a lot of animes out there that focus on a specific subculture and kind of make you fall in love with it. Like they tell you why it's so cool and they get into all those little details, you know? Yeah. I like that. For the rest of my life, I will get excited when I see a certain car drive by. Like an RX-7 will get me going every time, dude. Every <laughs> time, like forever. Yeah. My first time in Japan, the first night I was there, I saw Panda Trueno driving through Tokyo. And I was like, no way. initial D's real life. This is great. Oh man, it just reminded me of... Uh, I think it was an Instagram post I saw where this guy had the 8.6 from Initial D and he had like Japanese text on the side and he's showing it to his buddy and the buddy's like, oh, what does that say on the side? And the guy's like, oh, it says like something about a tofu shop or something. <laughs> but then the guy takes out his phone and like Google Translate and he's like, dude, this says something in Japanese. And the friend is like, yeah, yeah. It says like tofu shop in Japanese. And the friend is like, no. It literally says something in Japanese. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Put something in Japanese on it. Yeah. Like those two literal cake decorations you see from time to time. Exactly. <laughs> There's other media that's really spread it too, like the Gran Turismo video games, for example. Millions of people have played those, and they feature all kinds of fancy Japanese cars. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but Paul, do you prefer the arcade racers or the simulation racers? I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the difference is there. So my understanding is like there's kind of a spectrum when it comes to racing video games. 
on one side there's arcade racers that are just about like making it as fun as possible and there's you know it, it totally ignores realistic physics you got ah, cars yeah, yeah, flying okay. around and okay. stuff and then on the other end of the spectrum is the simulators like gran turismo where they just try to make it feel as realistic as possible i, I lean towards arcade me too i mean i'm a mario kart guy at heart which isn't quite a car game, but it's a racing game. It's a game. racing game, definitely. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's fun. It's definitely more on the arcade end of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually at the mall recently and found an arcade with two side-by-side Mario Kart arcade things. Yeah. I think we should go just spend a few hours there sometime. Sounds good. Cool. Um, anyway, for, for the intro here, I had a couple fun facts. Okay. If you want to hear about those. Just about Japan's car industry, Japan's automotive industry is one of the largest industries in the world, and since the 1960s, Japan has been one of the top three countries in the world for number of cars manufactured each year. Mm -hmm. Do you want to guess the other two countries that are consistently in the top three? You probably saw this in your research, I'm guessing. I don't know if I saw the other countries. Um, I'm going to say United States. Correct. I mean, since the 60s, I'd say now, probably China. It is China. Currently, Japan is not far behind the U.S., but China makes almost three times as many cars as the U.S. these days. Yeah, I believe it. It's a lot of cars. They got a different type of economy. True. Quota economy. Yeah. So next up, we're going to talk about the history. But first, Paul. Yes. As a veteran Japan nerd, I would guess that you've, you've probably ordered some stuff online from Japan before, right? Guilty as charged. You get those little special treats in Japan, and you can't wait until you get back to Japan again. Exactly. Sometimes you just got to go buy a few things. Totally. But you know, the problem is that so many of those websites that sell that kind of stuff are really expensive. Like they got to import everything, and it's just, you know, they got to make their money too, so it's like... A lot of that stuff ends up pretty expensive, but I have a new favorite website to order from that actually has very reasonable prices. Oh, yeah? Let me guess. Bentoandco.com. How did you know, Paul? Because I love them too. They have great, great selection. They specialize, as the name might suggest, in bento boxes and all sorts of awesome accessories to make your bentos really functional and pretty and cute and seasonal. It's really cool. But they also have teaware, kitchen pans and uh, kitchenware, I think is the word. Sure. <laughs> and food. They've got some really good selections of food that you just can't find outside of Japan very easily. Definitely. Dude, I got this Japanese pickle mix. You know, I've been like making my own kind of salt pickles just by myself. But, oh, for years. Yeah, but this Japanese pickle mix I got so freaking good. Like, it's way better than what I was doing on my own. Jason was showing his pickles to everybody the other night. <laughs> well, geez, that sounds a little risque, the way that you worded that. Ah, it's, it's just the truth. <laughs> they do have really good prices, but it gets even better. Because now you can use the code SIGHTSEEING10 to get an additional 10% off your order. Dude, that is awesome. I'm not even a big shopping person. Like, I don't spend a lot of time scrolling around online shopping for things. But when it comes to little Japan trinkets and snacks, 
I could spend hours doing that. Same. I uh, don't like online shopping normally, but I'm pretty sure I looked at every single item on this website. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I was like bookmarking <laughs> specific things I wanted to buy. Yeah, we got an order a couple weeks ago and we were both so impressed. I think we're ready to like order again and probably get even more than we got the first time. Definitely, dude. Now that we're getting 10% off, I'm going to go use that code right now. What was it again? Sightseeing10. At bentoandco.com. That's right. Nice. I'm going to get about 10 vegan ramens. Can you give me those deets one more time? Bentoandco.com. Enter code sightseeing10. But we got a link to make it even easier. Where can people find that, Jason? Oh, yeah. I just changed the donate section of our website to a support us section. And I have a link right there that you can use to get to Bento and Co. And it'll automatically apply the discount if you use that link. Awesome. So, Paul, where do you want to start with the history? How far back did you go? 1899. Okay. That's further back than I went. So go ahead. Japan imported its first automobile. That's what all. was it? I don't know. Where did it come from? Overseas. Okay. <laughs> Got anything else up until uh, 1910s? Uh, 1907 was the first time that they produced an entirely Japanese-made gasoline engine car. All right. I saw that Japan started mass producing automobiles in the mid to late 1910s. As a reference point, the Ford Model T was first produced in 1908, so Japan wasn't far behind. Mm -hmm. And at this point, while some companies designed their own cars, a lot of them partnered with European brands. And actually, before World War II, most of the cars in Japan were at least based on European or American models. Yeah, I actually was somewhat surprised to find that the market was pretty dominated by American companies in Japan. GM and Ford and Chrysler all set up factories in Japan to produce cars in the 1920s. That's true. But in the 1930s, laws were passed to basically force foreign manufacturers out of the country in order to support the domestic auto industry. Yeah, so by 1939, the foreign manufacturers were gone. And they would have been soon anyways with certain world events that were about to happen, but... Right. So in the time leading up to World War II, the demand for vehicles, specifically trucks, was rapidly increasing. So that caused a lot of those Japanese manufacturers to start designing more of their own vehicles from scratch instead of basing them on Western designs. You know when Japan started exporting cars, Paul? No, I don't know exactly when they started. I saw late 1950s. Yeah, sounds but, about right. But at that point, they weren't exporting a whole lot, like just a few hundred cars per year. Yeah, I saw that in the 60s, the amount increased 200-fold over what they were doing before. Yeah, 1961 was the first year they exported more than 10,000 cars in a year. Okay. But even at this point, the industry was still mostly focused on trucks. It actually wasn't until 1966 that passenger cars took the lead, which kind of makes sense when you consider the excellent train systems in Japan, right? Most yeah. people don't need a personal vehicle unless you have a reason to be hauling things around. So trucks were kind of the vehicle that made sense. Yeah, car growth in Japan went along with the economy a lot because you didn't necessarily need a car in the cities but as the economy grew throughout the 60s and 70s, 
car ownership went up and up and up because people could afford it. Yeah. Actually, around this time in the 60s was also when K cars were introduced. And we're going to talk a lot about K cars in a bit. But for now, all you need to know is that K cars are really small and relatively cheap cars. They were kind of like a half step up from scooters and motorcycles, which until this point were still the dominant personal vehicles. So the K cars really helped boost sales for the auto industry because all of a sudden the average person could afford a car. Yeah. The effects of the 1973 Arab oil embargo also accelerated exports for Japanese car manufacturers. Because Japan, like you said, with these K cars, they were specializing in these fuel efficient vehicles. And all of a sudden, gas was spiking all over the world. The demand for fuel efficient cars grew tremendously overnight, basically. And it uh, was a boon to the Japanese car makers. Yeah, so the auto industry grew rapidly between the 1970s and 1990s. They made a whole lot of cars for domestic and worldwide use. And at points in the 80s and 90s, they started to make more cars than the United States, putting them first place in the world for cars produced per year. That's impressive, Mm -hmm. with the U.S. being so much bigger. Yeah. And uh, I think at least part of the reason, there were a lot of factors, of course, that went into that, but part of the reason was that in the 70s, Japan pioneered the use of robotics in auto manufacturing. They Talked did. about that a little bit yeah. in the robots episode. Yeah. They also started using microchips to introduce more electronics into their cars years before the U.S. started doing the same. Yeah, I saw that too. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting geopolitically. We talked about in the 1930s, Japan passed the laws to boost its own internal industry. Japan's car sales were doing so well overseas that multiple countries started limiting the amount of Japanese cars that could be imported. Only 1.5% or only 3% of the cars sold in our country could be imported from Japan, which is a huge reason why the Japanese companies started opening up factories in other countries. Like if you go look at America now, there's a bunch of Toyota and Honda factories kind of all over the country producing cars that are then sold in America that count as American-made cars in a way. Cool. In 2008, I remember this actually because I was selling cars at the time at a GM store. Toyota surpassed General Motors as the largest car manufacturer in the world. Wow. And it was kind of a big deal in the industry. Everybody was talking about it. So all your coworkers are walking around hanging their heads in shame. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we actually, there was a Toyota store right next door to us. Even worse than that, it used to be our store. It was like the biggest, the flagship store. They were both owned by the same dealer group. They moved us out of it like a year or two earlier because they saw it coming. And they were like, no, the flagship's Toyota now. Wow. And we got put in the little small old building next door and we we kind of never got over it yeah that must have hurt we were just sitting there like but american made guys and everyone's like the toyotas are better paul toyotas are pretty good gotta say maybe i'm biased but i'd still buy an american pickup over a japanese but i'm never gonna buy a pickup truck so it's a moot point i think i drive a korean car right now actually i drive a japanese car (laughs) well are you special Yes, I am. 
I don't know, this isn't uh, the podcast for it, but we could talk about the American car industry and how they, they really messed up. Like, they had a chance to compete, but uh, I think it was, like, worker management relations kind of broke down and, and workers started, like, putting broken bottles into the car doors and all this stuff, like, sabotaging the cars intentionally. Anyway, interesting stories behind that whole thing. Yeah. The entire history of the automobile industry is pretty wild. Yeah. So these days, Japan's production numbers have dropped a bit due to competition from Korea, China, and India, but they're still third place in the world, as I think I mentioned before, and Japanese cars are, of course, still known around the world for their reliability, performance, design, etc. They're just solid cars, you know? I do know. Another thing that surprised me is that Japan is the third largest car market in the world, too surprising given the population like it's not a massive population compared to the other big countries right yeah just goes to show the success of their auto industry and the success of their economy overall i think i think i have something else in my notes that we'll get to in a little bit that might also contribute to explaining that okay like just a difference in the car culture in japan okay when and why people buy cars interesting to hear that yeah So for a long time, I'd heard the term JDM. Same. And I knew it had something to do with Japanese cars, but I'd never really looked into what exactly that meant. Same. Until recently. So JDM stands for Japanese Domestic Market. So we're talking about cars that are made and sold in Japan. But why is that even a thing that people talk about? Why is this special? Like nobody's talking about the USDM, right? True. Um, I think it's partly that they have to build these cars to the laws and codes in Japan. So they're very specific in exactly how they have to build them. I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is just that people like and respect Japanese cars and they want like an authentic Japanese Japanese car. Definitely. I mean, there's a whole worldwide subculture built around these purely Japanese cars because there are a lot of special things about them. And I guess I, it never really occurred to me that Japanese cars sold in Japan are actually very different from the Japanese cars that are sold in the U.S. or in other countries. Yeah, every country has a lot of different regulations about vehicles, vehicle safety, emissions, all sorts of stuff like that. Also, just you have to tailor it to the market, too. Yeah, definitely. Like, even just something like people are bigger in America. You might need wider seats, you know, like little things like that can, can change a car. Yeah, people are looking for different things from their automobiles. So I read a little bit about like comparing what people want in Japan versus what people want in the U.S. Okay. In America, a lot of people are, are looking for a car that's going to last a long time and it will last for a lot of miles because as you mentioned in the intro, Paul, cars are kind of essential in the US. Like if your car breaks down, that could mean you've just lost your livelihood basically, you know, until you get a new car. And it's ridiculous how common it is for someone to drive 40, 50, 60 miles each way for their job every day. It's insane. A lot of people do that. But in Japan, cars aren't expected to last as long and they aren't driven as hard. 
I saw that the average age of JDM cars is 8.7 years, and the average car is only driven around 5,800 miles or 9,300 kilometers per year, which is less than half of the American average. Wow. I feel like if you're buying an eight-year-old Toyota here, it's still worth like 75% of its sticker value. Like yeah. that, that car is just getting broken in. Totally. Yeah. So since people aren't owning cars as long in Japan, manufacturers have to put more focus on performance, innovation, and new features and technologies. Like they're constantly thinking about what new features they're going to pack in there to make sure people are buying their new cars. Paul, you also mentioned different laws, right? Yeah. Different co- countries have different safety regulations and stuff. They have different cultures. So that's also affected the car culture and the cars themselves. Completely off topic. I was also working at a Volkswagen dealership when their big emission scandal happened uh, oh, man. 12 years ago or whatever. Yeah. When they were cooking the test for their diesel engines, claiming clean diesel, and it was just super dirty. Those dirty dogs. I think I watched a documentary about that or something. Yeah, that was messed up. So do you want to talk about some of the specific differences between Japanese cars and cars from other countries? Um, why don't you? Okay. So I thought this was interesting. In 1988, the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association decided that for the sake of safety, Japanese cars could not have more than 276 horsepower and the top speed couldn't be more than 112 miles per hour, or 180 kilometers per hour. It's a little limiting. Yeah. The horsepower limit was actually lifted in 2004, but the speed limit is still in effect. It's just got to slap a governor on every car when you sell it. Yeah. So that seems like for the international market for these JDM cars, you would think that that would not be as appealing, right? But you can actually disable the speed limiter, so it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah. Another difference is that unlike in the U.S. and a lot of other places, Japanese cars, JDM cars, anyway, don't have a VIN. Really? Yeah. How will they tell them apart? So it's much more complicated. <laughs> like there's not a single number that identifies a car. They have a frame or chassis number, and then there's also a model code, and then there's also an emissions code. I was getting really confused. Wow, okay. But... Like the frame or chassis number has the serial number in it. And then the other codes tell you all the other details, like the model, the generation, the features, the emission standard. But you can't identify one specific car without like putting all of that together. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Yeah. Very different. How would you ever find your stolen car? Right. Okay. So those are a couple Interesting tidbits, but the main things that make these cars so popular overseas is their performance, the features and technologies, and of course their looks, because Japanese cars often are just really nicely designed. They look pretty, you know, they look sleek. Yeah. Some of the most popular ones are, you know, the ones that look really sporty and fast. Like think of the Fast and the Furious, right? All those Japanese cars in there, they just look awesome. Yeah. And that was the whole reason I watched any of those movies was because those cars are freaking beautiful. I mean, the not girls for, in the movies look pretty good too. Not but. for the family, Jason. What, there family. Was family in that movie? Family. Drink a Corona. We're all family now. 
I don't know what you're talking about. I just remember cars. And, Jason was just looking at the cars. And some pretty girls. I mean, the cars and, and the girls were better than the plot, but there there was a plot there. Were there? Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen them all. I don't know what they're at, like 10 now. I've probably seen like eight of them. I think the last one I saw was the Tokyo Drift one. Okay. That was probably like 2006. Okay. Yeah, that was like the third one uh, a long time ago. Yeah. I think I saw that at the drive-in, at the drive-in movie theater. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Yeah. It'd be hard sitting in your car, though. I'd want to be like, I, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me do a burnout in the back of this parking lot. <laughs> yeah. I think those movies actually had a lot to do with the increasing popularity of JDM cars in the early 2000s. Yeah. There's a lot of cult classics. If you're talking to car guys and you're like Toyota Supra, they're all going to be like, oh, dude. Yeah. See, Jason. Oh, dude. Immediately. You know. Supra was one of the most gorgeous cars. Yep. In like the early 2000s. It yeah. looked so good. Yeah. And I was jealous of Hulk Hogan's son, Nick. Is that his name? Uh, it sounds right. That kid didn't deserve that car. I'm pretty sure they bought it for him before he could even drive it legally. Like he didn't even have a driver's license. Wow. I should have had that car. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, uh, these Japanese, you know, fast, sporty, cool looking cars, they would have things like turbocharged engines all-wheel drive, advanced suspension systems. Oh, that's all great. All of those things are so nice in a car. Yeah. Well, those JDM cars are also hard to get. It takes a lot of work to import JDM cars, for one thing. Yeah. But even beyond that, like, there are just so many problems. <laughs> if you're trying to get your hands on a JDM car, like, some models even just have limited production, so they might not even be all that common even inside Japan. But that also kind of makes them extra cool and desirable, right? Like if you actually manage to have one, yeah. make, you're pretty cool. Yeah. Paul, did you know there's a term for cars that are imported outside of the official distribution system? No. So like these Japanese companies, of course, they're not sending JDM cars to the U.S. because they're not made for the U.S. market, right? So you can't right. get them directly from the manufacturers. You can't even get them from an authorized third party. So what you're getting them on is what they call the gray market. Okay. It's technically legal, but there's a lot of complicated stuff that needs to happen, and it's all different depending on what country you're trying to import these cars to. So importers have to work with these international shipping companies. They got to work with customs officials. They got to make sure the cars meet local safety and emission standards. Yep. Paul, did you see that in the U.S. you can't even import a JDM car until it's 25 years old? I didn't realize it was that long. 25 years. I knew it had to be a used car, but wow. Yeah. So it's got to be, it falls into like collector status or something at that point. Right. I saw, like I tried to figure out why they made that law. I think it was like the early 80s or something that the U.S. made that law. Apparently it was to protect consumers from fraud. Because in the 1980s, a lot of those gray market cars came into the U.S. and they were unsafely modified to look like official American imports. Okay. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> okay. People who do what they got to do to make a buck. People come up with all sorts of scams, man. It's crazy. That actually works out great for us, though, because all those amazing cars from Initial D are all about 25 years old now. Yeah. Time to go import a 1993 white RX-7. Yeah, good luck fixing it when it breaks down. <laughs> I'm just not going to drive it, bro. I'm just going to park it out front and stand next to it. All right. 
Well, even if you do that, you're still going to have to find a way to finance the car if you can't pay cash. And it's not going to be as easy as just walking into a normal dealership. A lot of banks won't even consider that type of car as collateral. Yeah, it's too old. You can't finance a 25-year-old car because you just stop paying on it. What are they going to do? Repossess it? And what are they going to do with it? Yeah. And like I said, once you buy the car, you still have to make sure you can find somebody to service it. You got to find like a specialized place that really knows that stuff. Yeah. And even getting the parts could be very difficult. Exactly. So I'm curious if you came across this. A lot of people, to get around all those issues with importing cars, some people actually make replicas of JDM cars using the version of that same car that they can buy in their home country. Yeah. (laughs) Like they'll buy the US version of a certain car and then buy some Japanese parts and flip things around so that the like driver's seat is on the right side and everything and it looks like it came from Japan. But even the internals are different. Like anyone who knows things about JDM will take a look at that car and be able to tell, oh, that's not authentic. Well, I feel like if it's less than 25 years old, you could just look at it and be like, I doubt that's JDM. (laughs) I guess, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I thought it was really cool that there's just this whole community around these cars. And like I I poked around a little bit online to see like where you could buy them and stuff. And there are companies that kind of take care of a lot of the issues for you. But I'm just imagining Japanese car weebs being like, that's not a real JDM. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, they'd probably think it was cool. Yeah. Well, a lot of people think these JDM cars are pretty cool because they have car clubs, online communities, even international events focused on JDM cars. I think it'd be pretty fun to go to a JDM event and like take a look at those. Yeah. Car beatups are fun. I I like them. So we already mentioned K cars a little bit in the history section, but I think we can dive a little deeper because there's some interesting things about them. Absolutely. I was actually really interested to do this part of the research because I'd heard so much about K cars and I didn't really know a whole lot about them. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I think is important to know, maybe the first thing, is that it's not just like the letter K dash cars. It's K-E-I cars. Yeah. They're essentially just little cars. Uh, The K, K K-E-I, is short for Keiji Dosha, which means light automobile. Yes. So that's the category in Japan for the smallest passenger vehicles that are still legal to drive on all roads. Yep. I kind of wish we had a category like that in the US because cars here are all big and expensive, <laughs> you know. There's a couple like little banger cars that you can get, but they're always like the cheapest ones with like nothing nice in them. Well, I remembered the thing that came to my mind is that Smart 42. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The really little one. Yep. I remember looking into that cuz I was like, "Oh, this car is tiny. Maybe I can get one for really cheap." No. They're not cheap. No, <laughs> They're like yeah. as much as a normal size car. Yeah, they were like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars like over ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I think the cheapest new car you can buy in America is over ten grand. I haven't looked in a while, but I saw one place say that you could there was only one car that you could buy brand new in the US for less than twenty thousand dollars. But then I found some other article that said, Oh, here are the three cars that you can yeah. get for less than twenty thousand. But either way, it's I've been hard to get a car for, a for less than twenty thousand. Yeah. That's crazy. It is crazy. 
I have a little bit later the average price. Yeah. I'll save it though. This will be a teaser and then I'll blow your mind with it in a little bit. Uh, but so the K car thing, it's not just about the size, it's not just that they're smaller. This is actually an official segment of the industry that's defined by the government. They have official limits on the size, the engine capacity, and the power of a car for it to qualify as a K car. Yeah. The reason they have this category is they give tax breaks and insurance benefits for people that own these cars. So that's the incentive for people to buy these cars. Yeah, I did see that those have actually been reduced a bit in recent years, though. Yes, which has caused K cars to decrease in popularity in Japan. Yeah. Do you have the, uh, the measurements, the requirements, Paul? No, no, I didn't get those. A K car has to be at most... 11 feet or 3.4 meters long, 4.9 feet wide, which is 1.48 meters, and up to 6.6 feet or 2 meters tall. And the engine displacement must be no more than 660 cc's. Okay. That's cubic centimeters. That's the only thing out of all those that means anything to me. And maximum horsepower? Guess. Oh. <sighs> It's 90. <laughs> it's so low. Max horsepower is 63, 63. horsepower. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow. Okay. All right. I suppose the car's small and light, so you got that going for you. True. And if you're driving in the city a lot, it doesn't really matter. I bet with that little horsepower, though, like each extra person you put in there, you're going to notice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, like my first car was kind of like that. When I had my buddies in the car and there was like four of us, it was a little hard going up a ramp to try to get on the freeway and get up to 70 yeah. miles an hour. Let me just floor this for the next 20 seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could tell the difference between just me in the car and not. Yeah. Another interesting thing about K cars is Japan has parking space requirements. Like you need a parking space to be able to own a car because street parking is illegal in most places. But in most rural areas, if you buy a K car, they waive that requirement. That's cool. Yeah. So I have a few bullet points here about why do K cars exist? I mean, we said in the history section that like a part of it is that they wanted to boost the industry by making sure that people could afford cars, right? Sure. But there are a lot of other reasons. So we'll start with the, the whole vehicle category for K-Cars was created in 1949. Yep. Give people more access to vehicles. The cars were and are also popular for small business owners. It can help you haul whatever you need to haul. Yeah. And if you have specific needs, whether you want to carry people or stuff, there are different types of vehicles in the K-Car category, like microvans, which are adorable. And K-Trucks. It's amazing to me thinking of a truck with 60 horsepower, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's so many options. And you can like pick whatever type of vehicle suits your needs. There's got to be environmental benefits. I really like how boxy and stubby they look. They look like chibi cars. You know what I mean? Yeah, you get the most out of the space by making it boxy because it can only be so tall and so wide. So they take up the whole dimensions that are possible. Yeah. And you, you want, can actually fit kind of a lot in them. Yep. Got to maximize that interior space. 
I also really like the sporty ones. Like they make K car convertibles, which I thought was really cool. I feel like the sporty ones actually look good. They do. Because the size of the car fits with the low profile. It looks like a sports car. Some of the vans and trucks kind of look weird because they're like so skinny and tall. And in my opinion, it was from what I'm used to, at least. I love the little chibi sports cars. Yeah. I think yeah. I got a picture of this car in Shikoku on our last trip. And I was like, it just. I was stunned for a second when I saw it. I'm like, it's so tiny, but it's also so sporty. And like, it looks like it's so much fun to drive. And I didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me at the time, but it's one of those little, little yeah. K car sport cars. I do feel like 60 horsepower in a sports car might be slightly disappointing. But like you said, they're so light. And like, I really like cars that are like agile, you know? Yeah, I don't want yeah. like a car that feels like it's struggling to turn quickly. I bet you could just zoom around in those little things like a go-kart, you know? Like I'm probably not going to go 150 miles per hour in a straight line in my car, but I might see how fast it can go around a turn. Yeah. And I mean, that's what's fun. You know, that's what's fun about driving is doing the turns. Yeah. Yeah. Another big plus, of course, I mean, I guess we keep coming back to it. K-cars are cheap. Uh, This is where I have in my notes, the average price of a new car in the USA. You want to guess? Average of new cars sold in the USA, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, 38,000. 48,000. That's crazy. People are crazy. Isn't that more than the median income for a single person? It's very close. Somewhere around there. It's right around there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that I'm out of the industry, I I can talk crap, but people make bad financial decisions with cars, dude. People would come in, roll over $5,000 of negative equity from their last SUV and buy a new, at that time, $50,000, $60,000 SUV. I don't know what they are now. And their payments would be like $900 a month, $1,000 a month for like five years. And then they'd come trade it in again before they paid it off. And their payments would go up and up and up every time until finally they wouldn't get financed. And they'd be like, why not? Wow. It's because you're trying to roll $15,000 negative equity into your new car. Of course, the bank's not going to finance you. Yeah. Anyways, end of rant. I will always spend as little as possible on a car, <laughs> personally. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like that like three to seven-year-old range for used cars where they're like still pretty nice, but way cheaper. Yeah. And you can drive it for 10 years and not have many problems. I don't know how to feel about that. Like I went from, yes, when I grow up, I'm going to own a Dodge Viper. And now I'm like, I will never buy a brand new car. <laughs> I'm going to buy used cars for the rest of my life. Well, one thing happened in between those two times. You started having to work full time and pay bills. Yep. And you prioritize and, what's you know, really important. And the world started falling apart and everything. But <laughs> anyway... So for all of these reasons, K-cars are super popular. I have a stat here. Okay. In 2022, 34.1% of the passenger cars sold in Japan were K-cars. Wow, that's a lot. That's more than a third of the market. That's a lot. Yep. I found it interesting that K-cars are very popular with the elderly, but also with young families. And both like them because they're affordable and easy to use. Yeah. 
I mean, you can get one of those micro vans, carry around a whole family yeah. with a few kids. Yep. And you don't even need like a full-size car. And if you're looking out for a K car in Japan, I didn't know this, but they all have special license plates. Oh, yeah. Where they have a yellow license plate with black numbers. Uh, so people call them yellow plate cars sometimes. So if you're in Japan, be on the lookout. Yeah, you can just immediately tell. And it'll be a lot of them. Yep. Okay, Paul, let's talk about a different car subculture, let's call it. Sure. Is this your favorite subculture, would you say? Yes. Me too. Yes, for multiple reasons. We're talking about Itasha. Itasha. The name comes from Itai, which means pain, and Sha, which means vehicle. So these are pain cars (laughs) or cringy cars or painful cars. It's also a pun because Itasha can also mean an Italian car. I guess that's where it originally came from, kind of a play yeah, on that. somehow morphed into these. But why are they painful or cringeworthy to look at, Paul? Well, they're painful to your wallet because they're quite expensive. They're also painful to look at for some people because these are cars that are totally decked out in either a wrap or a paint job featuring anime, manga, or video game characters, or even more recently, VTubers. Of course. Yeah, this is very much a product of otaku culture. But actually, these days, it seems like this whole idea has gained more mainstream acceptance, and they're not looked down upon with as much disdain as in the past, perhaps. Yeah. I love the name, though. I love the cringe car name but i also just love them that people love these characters so much that i mean a car is expensive but then you have to go pay thousands of dollars to get these custom paint jobs or wraps done and people just do it out of love for the fandom so how much do you have saved up are you getting close to doing this to your car oh no i'm not doing this shifty-eyed paul (laughs) don't lie what vtuber are you gonna put on there um, Iron Mouse. I don't know who that is. What? Mighty Mouse? Wait, well, hold on. Hold Iron. I liked Mighty Mouse. Mouse. Yeah, I stop, could get... stop. You're hurting me. <laughs> I got drive to work every day. Although in the four years or whatever we've been doing this podcast, I've become much more accepting of my own weebiness. That's good. So maybe like three years from now, I will do it. But right now, I'm still like, no, 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 I can't. I got I to gotta drive that car in public, bro. Paul, did you see recently on Instagram, I had a story where I, I did this poll, and uh, I don't know, it was about this, this meme, and the meme used the word weeb in there. And on the poll, one of the options I put was like, what does the word weeb mean? Yeah, I voted in that poll. But you didn't vote for what does weeb mean. No. But a lot of people did. I think like a third of the people that responded voted that, so... I feel like we've been using the word weeb more and more on the Uh, podcast recently. Do you want to explain that term? I actually don't remember where the etymology comes from, but there's a whole crazy story behind it. And originally it had nothing to do with Japan. Yeah. But it means a person that is overly obsessed with anime or video games or Japanese culture in general. 
often used in a derogatory way, but we're taking it back, right? It's been taken back. Like 10 years ago, people wouldn't call themselves weebs, but now everybody's like, yeah, I'm a weeb. And kind of gives you like street cred in a certain circle to openly declare it. Yeah. The kids these days don't care anymore. They're like, I'm a weeb. That's like, good. All right. All right. Breaking like, down barriers. Yeah. Kids these days are more accepting of their differences, you know? I remember when we were in high school and we had to hide everything about ourselves. I do. I do. <laughs> Still carry those scars with me every day, Paul. <laughs> One wrong move. Like, ew, you like that band? You're lame, bro. Well, now you got a nickname for the next seven years. <laughs> Cool guy, Jason. That was your nickname, right? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> so, Itasha, they come in a lot of different forms, right? Paul, like you said, sometimes the entire car is covered in a wrap. Sometimes it might just be certain parts of the car, maybe certain panels that are decorated. Yeah, like could be just the hood. You could even just get like a decal. I mean, you could just get stickers and slap them on your car, and there you go. Now it's an Itasha. I do have a bunch of VTuber stickers. Yeah, you do. I do. I've seen some really amazing interiors, too. You could also get the interior decorated. Maybe a cool color scheme that matches your paint job. Yeah. These cars are cool because the main modification is just the paint job. You know? It's just, here's what it is. And it's otherwise just a normal car. Not that they can't do other modifications, but... Yeah. Paul, ask me what character I would put on my car. What character Miku. would you put? Okay. I... I'm not surprised. I was thinking possibly Haruhi Suzumiya, but that's a little bit old now. Miku kind of lives forever, more contemporary. Yeah. The other one that popped into my head was Umaru. That would be in, a fun one. In the hamster cape. I think chibi, you need, you need both Umaru. versions of Umaru. Ah, yeah. We got two sides of the car. Maybe the, uh, you got public Umaru on the hood and then the little chibi Umaru on the sides or something. That does really represent you. Because Jason in public is just an <laughs> upstanding gentleman and respected by everybody at work. And then he comes home and just turns into a degenerate weeb. That is actually why I like Dumaru so much, because I felt like I, I really identified with her. Yep, yep. But man, I saw this Miku 86 that Ooh, I would love to own. It was beautiful. That sounds nice. Yeah. These cars don't even go back that far. The first reported sighting of a Natasha car was in 2005 at Comicat 68. That is surprising. I did not realize it was that new. Yeah. So this is less than 20-year-old trend. Huh. You can also find other types of vehicles decorated in a similar fashion, and they all have different names, like Itancha are motorcycles. Itachari are bicycles. They got Itabasu. Buses. <laughs> Buses with anime characters. Itatraku for trucks. Itadensha for trains. They have taxis as well. Itatakshi. Yes. I would love to ride in one. That'd be so cool. It would be cool. Almost as cool as that denim taxi we found. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> Just to give an idea of how popular this has become in such a short period of time, there are now Itasha collaborations 
with anime voice actors and cosplayers. There are company-sponsored Itasha cars used as like marketing for anime and video games. In 2018, there was a huge gathering in Odaiba of Itasha cars, and there were 1,000 of them, which is so many. That's absolutely wild. Dude, I would love to go to an Itasha exhibition. Same. They got like cosplayers and anime voice actors and companies set up booths and they have like awards for the best cars and everything. That just sounds like a great way to spend a day. Just wandering around looking at all this stuff. Yeah. It's been too long since I've been to a car show. Me too. Yeah, these exhibitions don't even only happen in Japan. In recent years, they've had events like this in China and Taiwan and even Western countries like the USA, Germany, and Switzerland. Let's go. Should we look up the next one and take a trip? Yeah. I'm down. I'm sure they've got some in LA, right? Take Definitely. a nice little winter trip, get some sunshine. It seems see, like the best see place See some anime cars. Yeah. My only worry about getting one of these myself is that I would maybe want to do a VTuber, but some of them, like Iron Mouse, for example, she gets like three new models a year. New mo- like she looks different all the time? Yeah, like a new model. You know, they're all kind of like similar looking. I thought the Mighty Mouse look was just like a red cape Stop and like a yellow suit. Mighty Mouse or we're going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose you could lock in that classic look. Sure. Well, Paul, I think another subculture we have to mention is street racing. We gotta. Because everybody's heard of Tokyo Drift, right? Yep. Everybody knows that on Japanese streets, everybody's just drifting around all the time, right? Uh, not quite. So I gotta be careful on the sidewalks. You never know when a car is gonna jump up at you. I feel like you're probably more likely to get uh, run over by a senile old driver than you are an out-of-control drifter. Probably. Um, So to define street racing, this is the idea of racing on public roads. It is generally frowned upon by the authorities. (laughs) Understatement of the year right there. (laughs) It's exhilarating. Exciting. Because of the the risk of getting caught by the police. That's part of it. Or maybe killing somebody. But it's also really cool. It is really cool. Especially when they're drifting too. Drifting came out of street racing on these downhill mountain passes with these tight turns. Right. I mean, I think, so street racing is popular all over the world, right? But I think what's special about the racing scene in Japan is that they have all those mountains with these winding passes that makes for really interesting races. Yeah. There's actually a style of racing called toge racing. Toge refers to those mountain passes. Yeah. And that's, of course, what gave rise to the popularity of drifting specifically, like the type of racing that happens in Initial D. Yeah. So for the toge racing, those mountain passes are really narrow. So they generally don't pass each other. One car starts in front of the other, and you win if you can pull significantly away as the lead car. And if you can't, you go back to the top and you switch places and you race again until someone pulls away from the other person. I'm trying to remember, Paul. It's been a long time since I watched Initial D. Do they do a whole lot of drifting? I mean, there's definitely drifting. But was that like a main 
technique that they used all the time. Yes. Because not every person they raced well, it depends was on the car drifter. too, right? Right. If you're a four-wheel drive or an all-wheel drive car, you do less real drifting. I remember there were those all-wheel drive Mitsubishi, the Evos, yep, yep. that like they drifted them, but also that's a the whole GTRs. Different but Takabe, the main character, was full drift, yeah. full drift all the time. But I think since watching that show, I learned that like in most cases, drifting doesn't make you faster. Like it actually slows you down because you're losing traction. Right? You're not wrong. But it's so cool, so whatever. <laughs> All right, fair <laughs> enough. I mean, and when we're talking about drifting, we're talking about going around a corner, making your back wheels start sliding out and losing traction. And you could do a four-wheel drift, and you could even get your front wheels to start drifting, too. That sounds extremely scary and really difficult and dangerous. On a mountain pass, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about the four-wheel drive specifically. That would be like, like you're losing traction on all the wheels. You're almost losing control. Yes, yes. You have to purposely understeer to get out there and correct it. It's, it's really complicated, but also really cool and fun. It is really cool. I would love to do it on racetrack, yeah. not on a mountain pass. Oh, man. I saw videos on YouTube where people like hired a... Uh, a professional drifter and they just got to ride in the passenger oh, seat. Man. It looks like so much fun. Yeah. There's all these crazy methods where like you're heel towing it where you're hitting the gas and the brake at the same time to get the drifting effect. And then you're doing the clutch with your other foot. Like it gets super complicated. Yeah. I wasn't even going to go into the mechanics of drifting, but since we're on it, sure. Uh, to do a real drift, you need a rear rear wheel drive car because what you're doing is, you're losing traction with the back wheels and the back is kind of swinging out towards the outside of the turn. And then you're using the front wheels to follow along the inside of the curve as closely as possible. Yep. But you can also kind of fake a drift by using an emergency brake in a front wheel drive car. <laughs> yes. Did you ever do that, Paul? Um, only in the snow. Mm. In the snow, I mean, you can do it by just hitting your brakes if it's icy enough and turning. Yeah. You know, go to find a little cul-de-sac and sw swing around real quick, have some fun. Yeah. Maybe we should say, uh, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah. Your car has to be set up for it. If you don't have like a limited slip differential, it's not going to work in your car. You're going to break everything. Like you, you have to have a tuned up car for this to work. Drive safely, follow your local laws, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. Whatever. So anyway. In Japan, people would form teams and meet up at night to do all this fun, illegal stuff. Kind of like Fast and Furious. I mean, you know, they had those meetups in those movies, right? Yep. Paul, did you read much about the Midnight Club? No. Really? So they were like the most famous racing team in Japan. They're kind of legendary. Yeah. They raced on the Wangan Highway between Tokyo and Yokohama between 1987 and 1999. I saw some really interesting stories around that club. So maybe you imagine a racing club as like, I don't know, some, some young kids that are just like thrill seekers and they got crappy cars that they like to drive fast or whatever, right? This club was not that. These were people that were very serious about racing. They actually had a minimum requirement if you wanted to be a member of their club. You needed to have a car that could go over 250 kilometers per hour which is 160 miles per hour. But Jason, that's illegal. 
Pshaw. <laughs> so they had some really nice cars. Like people in this club had Lamborghinis and Ferraris and stuff, Porsches. And if you wanted to join, you had to become an apprentice for a year. And then only 10% of apprentices became full members. Exclusive. Yeah. And then they had all this crazy, like, I don't know, just stuff that reminded me of like the movies. Like the members only used first names. Nobody knew anyone else's last name. So you could be anonymous. Yeah. I don't know where he's from. I don't know what he does. I don't know what his last name is. Yeah. And then they organized meetups that nobody even had each other's phone numbers. They would organize meetups by putting secret messages in the newspaper. That's really cool. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. We could probably do a whole episode just about that group. Like there's so much behind that, that whole period. And uh, yeah. it sounded very cool. Drifties yeah. become so popular that they have professional drifting on tracks now. And it's, as far as I'm aware, it's not judged by time. It's judged by how awesome your drifts look. Yeah. I mean, in all of the uh, drifting video games I've played, that's how it works. It's not the time. It's how much of the time you're drifting. Because you want to like link all of your turns together so that you're almost always drifting, basically. Yeah. But I've it's seen really it before difficult. where they're driving like figure eight tracks. Yeah. And it's just big drift, big drift, big drift, just whipping around. Yeah. But you have to strike a balance. It's really challenging to not, you know... I mean, you can't go too wide. You can't go too narrow. Like you have yeah, to you gotta stay in the middle. Yeah, you got to control your speed. You got to control everything. It's not easy. Yeah. So if you're ever in Japan, go find a drifting game in an arcade and <laughs> try it out. Yeah. Um. So the the racing subculture I saw they peaked in the 1990s, but the number of people involved has been declining ever since, partially because of the increasing cost. And also increased efforts from the police to shut this stuff down. Yeah, some of the more popular mountain passes, they went and put a bunch of speed bumps on. Mm. And you just can't race them anymore. I think I saw that on some of them, they even like, they came up with this new surface that they could put on the turns that would like, the idea was it was supposed to be impossible to drift on them or something. That just sounds like a challenge. I think that's how a lot of people <laughs> took it. Yeah. <laughs> but I found some interesting reasons why... People are less interested in racing these days. Okay. One is, so people, like young people interested in racing used to be able to get used cars fairly cheaply, right? But in the year 2000, emission standards in Japan changed. So in response, they stopped making a lot of the most popular sports cars like the Supra, the RX-7, the Skyline GTR. Mm-hmm. So since they stopped making them, of course, the prices of used ones that were still available rose. Yeah. And then at the same time, people outside of Japan started importing more and more of those exact same cars, making them even more rare and expensive. And Japan just isn't even making as many new sports cars these days. There's more of a focus on fuel efficiency, safety, and environmental friendliness. So all that stuff just kind of killed the whole street racing culture. Yeah. Kind of sad, but I guess it's safer in a less exciting way. So let's talk about some other car subcultures in Japan, because there are a lot of them. Yeah. People are doing all yeah. sorts of stuff with their cars. Well, let's start with the classics then. Kyusha cars, which translates to classic Japanese car. 
Yeah. So what I saw is like originally, if you were talking to somebody about a Qusha car, that's all it would mean is you're talking about classic cars. But these days, there's also a subculture around tuning and modding old cars to turn them into something new. Like there are definitely still people that want to hold on to these classic cars and keep them as close to their original state as possible, right? Using all original parts and everything. But a lot of people are using new parts to kind of bring these old cars into the modern age, you could say. Yeah. They make a lot of modifications, but a little bit more subtle than some of the other styles we're going to talk about. So they still, they look cool, but they still kind of look classic too. They might put on some new rims, maybe some low profile tires, modest fender flares. And a lot of the mods might be internal too. Like you're modding the engine instead of the the outer aesthetics. Yeah. I saw there's actually a whole industry has sprung up around creating new custom parts for old cars. And some people, I mean, you can go as deep as you want modding your car. Some people do entire engine swaps, which reminded me a lot of uh, when the A6 gets a new engine. Yeah. Initial D. Yep. Yeah, I, I liked a lot of the pictures I saw of these. Yep. A lot of them were like all black with chrome wheels, maybe lowered a little bit and just a couple like slight body kit modifications. Like they looked pretty clean. Yeah. Out of all these subcultures we're going to talk about, that's one of the ones that I would be more likely to gravitate towards. Okay. Because some of these get really out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So another one is Kaido Racers. These cars are inspired by the Japanese race cars from the 1970s and 80s. But, I mean, some people go really far with these crazy mods. Like, did you see the ones with the like insanely long front lips? Yes. Sticking off of the front bumper. like Could miss that. Yeah. And they're super low to the ground. Yeah, yeah, like a couple inches off the ground. And they literally go five feet out in front of the car in some cases. Yeah. They can also have all sorts of huge, crazy spoilers. Maybe bolted on fender flares. Those are pretty popular. And we got to talk about the Takeyati. So Take is bamboo and Yari is a spear. These are bamboo spear exhaust pipes. You saw those, right? I mean, I saw that they do a ton of modifications to the exhaust pipes. I didn't see the bamboo name. You didn't see the ones that stick like 10 feet in the air? Yeah. They do all sorts of things. They make them really long. They make them wiggly. They do, they do all sorts of modifications. Yeah. Those are called takayati because okay. they look like big, long bamboo spears. Okay. I mean, they get insane. I saw ones that were coming out of the hood and just like going up above the car and then and then there's like a little kink and it goes straight back, like all the way to the back of the car. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. I don't know how they can even support those things. I don't know how they don't just fall off. And it makes these cars obnoxiously loud. I bet. Yeah. These people making these cars are really having fun with it. Like, I don't think this is a subculture that takes itself too seriously. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's also a similar subculture for trucks. Those are called decotra, decorated trucks, and those can look pretty cool too. Mm -hmm. Paul, do you remember the movie uh, Maximum Overdrive? No. It reminded me of that. Or like Mad Max, just these huge trucks with like all sorts of crazy stuff hanging off of them, lights and horns and stuff. Yeah. So there's also a subgroup called Shakotan, 
which is basically a Japanese lowrider. It translates to low car, so that kind of makes sense. It's maybe the one of the more tame kinds because the low riding and custom rims are usually the main modifications. Yeah, well, so here's where we get into like how hard it is to categorize these cars because as I understand it, Shakotan just refers to like lowering the car basically. And you could combine that with all sorts of other mods which might make your car fit into one of these categories better than the other. Like it can be Shakotan, but also be a Kaido racer. Yeah. It could be Shakotan, but also be a Bosozoku, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. So it's like all, all these categories are kind of overlapping in a lot of ways and it gets it sometimes gets used interchangeably by different sources. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed like some people might insist, like, my car is this type of car, not that other thing. But sure. different people had different ideas of how to separate these categories and stuff. Yeah. So we should talk about Bosozoku. The history of these was fascinating. It translates as violent running tribe. Kind of, I believe, in reference to like a street gang. Yeah. Because these originated in the 1950s with young airplane pilots coming back from military service after World War II. And a lot of these guys were ready to die. They didn't think they'd ever come back. Just imagine these guys being trained as kamikaze pilots, right? They were in the mindset, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll go fly my plane and, uh, and just fly it into something and die for my country. You know, yeah. and then like war's over, go back home, get a job. And well, that sounds boring. <laughs> they still had a lot to deal with, with the trauma of the war. So it originally started with motorcycle gangs where they'd get these little electric bikes and speed around and they started modifying them all these crazy ways to stand out. Electric bikes? Yeah. Huh. And they were kind of like running around like little street gangs. And uh, started with a bad reputation, but it's definitely morphed these days into, they still do the bikes, but it's morphed into a car genre as well. And if you tell someone these days, oh, I have a Bosozoku car, they're not going to immediately be like, oh, this guy's a gangster. It's kind of become its own thing outside of that. Yeah. It's more about the car than the gang stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And these ones are like, the wildest of the wild, like full on huge body kits, all the crazy tailpipe and exhaust stuff, super wide fenders. They're pushing car modding to the limit. And a lot of these cars are technically illegal even. Yeah, yeah. And like, you're not going to be able to go out and buy custom Bosozoku parts. There isn't a market for that. These mods are homemade. Yeah, it's all DIY. The pictures are just so cool. So yeah. cool. But they look like gimmick cars. You know, totally. it's not s- serious. I don't want to say they're not serious about it, but the style just looks like not serious. Like, we're just going to do as much wild stuff as we can possibly imagine. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these cars, you can barely even drive. Like, they're so low to the ground. And you might see like extreme camber. You know, camber, Paul? No. That's where you make your tires like slant Ah, outwards. So it looks like your car is kind of squatting. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a hilarious look. 
I don't know. With some of these body kits they put on, they can't even open the doors and they have to go in and out through the window. Cool. <laughs> it is kind of cool. Let me get in my car. You like slide in through the window. People are damn. It's like uh Dukes of Hazard, right? Didn't they do that? Yep. Yep. Not that I was ever really into that show. Before you, my time. You know, my mom had that car. Really? 69 Charger. The General Lee. Mm-hmm. I hope she didn't have a Confederate flag on the hood. No. I'm pretty sure it was the same car. She's told me that story so many times, but I can never remember, like, is it that exact year? Or was it one year off or something? Yeah. It was definitely a Charger, though. Okay. I want to say 69. I it's, think that's the one in the show. It's a pretty cool car. Yeah. I don't know. I'll talk about my favorite cars. Like, 69 was a great year, but the Charger, sorry, Mom, not the coolest car from 1969. Uh, do you have any other styles to talk about? Um, VIP. I do like that one. That's another one of the ones that I really like. Because they're also less crazy and a little more functional, right? Yeah. They're more toned down in the color schemes. They tend to be dark, polished colors with chrome accents. I've heard it described as this is the type of car you would imagine a Yakuza boss riding around in. Yeah. They look luxurious. Yeah. They pay a lot of attention to the inside on these cars. They make them extremely luxurious inside and do more low-key modifications on the outside appearance. I like that. And these, they actually occasionally will do foreign cars. Chevrolets or BMWs sometimes get modified in this way. Interesting. Whereas you don't really see that with the other styles. I would imagine Mercedes. I would I would think a Yakuza boss would want to be driven around in a Mercedes, right? Maybe. BMW is kind of close. Uh, I wonder what models of Chevrolets they're using. I didn't really see that. Yeah. I feel like they'd want an older, like a classic Chevy from the 50s or something for that style. Yeah, there were some nice ones. Yeah. Um, I also saw a subcategory called Grachan which literally means grand championship. And these are cars that they modify to look like group five racers, which is a type of professional racing in Japan. So they try to make their cars look as much like these race cars from the eighties as possible. Cause that's just what they're into. Cool. Yeah. Got anything else? Nope. All right. Well, let me ask you, Paul, do you have a favorite Japanese car or subculture? Um, Itasha is the favorite subculture, okay. I'd say. Oh, yeah, I guess we said that already. Yeah, yeah. Favorite car? Probably RX-7. Hmm. I just any, love the Any look. particular year? Um, I couldn't tell you an exact year, no. The RX-8s are cool, too. They're similar, yeah, yeah. but I like the 7 a little more. I don't know. Personally, I preferred the MX-5 over the RX-7, just for the looks, anyway. Yeah, fair enough. The RX-7 was always kind of like long and skinny looking to me. Anyway, you want to know my favorite Japanese car? Yeah. There's a single car that's yeah. just, oh man. So you know the Nissan Z cars? Yeah. Like they still make them. The, the 370Z maybe is the newest one. Sure. Or actually, I think there's like a brand new Nissan Z something maybe they have some other model number but the new one looks pretty cool i wasn't a huge fan of like the 370 and 350 z's they look pretty cool but okay the z cars 
the 1969 Fairlady Z. Absolutely gorgeous. I remember as a kid seeing one of those in a parking lot somewhere, and I was just like, whoa, that is a beautiful car. Okay. I'll go look it up. I don't know what that looks Your like. phone's right there. Google it, Paul. 1969 Fairlady Z. A lot of those early Z cars were good, but that specific one is just great. It looks, it reminds me of some of the early Ferraris, but it looks even cooler than the 1969 Ferraris. Okay, it does look a little bit like a classic Ferrari. Yeah. Like the headlights, they kind of recessed a little bit. I like the mirrors are like way up on the hood. The rear view or the side view mirrors are like halfway up the hood. Yeah. That's kind of a cool look. Yeah, I like the front. The way the front is just shaped and sticks out a little bit. The long hood with the cab a little bit further back. That is a pretty cool look. Exactly. It's perfectly proportioned. Yeah, looks like nice. It's, it's got the sleekest lines. I don't know. It looks like aggressive and sporty, and oh, I, just, I just love it. I'm just going to stare at this picture now for a while. For once, Jason... You've got good taste. For once? What does that mean? <laughs> I just wanted to take a shot at you well, for now, no particular reason. No, let's, let's dig into this. What do I not have good taste in? Food. Food? Yeah. You're a vegan, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't, think, I don't think your opinion is at all valid in that department. I feel like you decide how good food's going to taste before you eat it. You're saying this because I was eating natto when you came over. <laughs> no, actually, no. I was actually thinking about. Uh, you're always like, oh, the f- it, it looks so fatty and greasy. It's gonna be delicious. I'm not prejudging the food. I just know from experience that greasy, fatty food is often very delicious. Okay, okay, that's good defense. Anyway, it's good defense to a random made up shot just for fun. Anyway, back to the cars. I had a little bit more. 1969, great year for cars. In America, too, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. The 69 Corvette Stingray, probably the prettiest Corvette ever made. I don't know what they... They ruined the Corvette after that. (laughs) I mean, I know they're fast and everything, but they don't look good anymore. Yeah, I'm not super into the vet look. The 69 Chevelle, Barracuda, the Mustang, all beautiful. Some of those 60 Buicks, like those huge boat ones... Hmm. just looked great they had that futurism you know they were designing them to look like spaceships and stuff you know what i really wanted to do when i got my driver's license you know i didn't have any money but i wanted a cool looking car so i was thinking i would get a celica like the 1996 celica before they ruined the celica like when they still looked cool And then they had all these amazing body kits that made that car look even cooler. And then I wanted to put like neons underneath. Oh, it was going to be so cool. (laughs) The neons. Or the Honda Del Sol, like a 97 Honda Del Sol. That looked really cool too. And they had some good body kits for that. We're not wrong, but I also feel like we're starting to trend down the path. Oh, when I was a kid, everything was great. And this new stuff sucks. They're, they're cool new cars, too. Everything's getting worse. I really like the style of the new 86s. Yeah, those are cool. All right, we should probably wrap this one up, or we could talk about car models all night. The Supra came back. It did. I still think the Supra did look cooler before they got rid of it, but the new ones are 
I mean, they still look cool. Yep. But yeah, we should probably wrap it up. Um, I'll post that picture of uh, that cute, sporty little K car on Instagram. Nice. We're at SJP Podcast. You can also find Paul on Twitter at SJP Podcast. Yep. Do they use the at on Twitter? Yeah. Okay. I don't do Twitter. I don't know anything about X. I mean, X, right? Yeah. It's still Twitter in my mind. I don't know. Maybe someday I'll make the change. X is just a bad name. It is. Oh, I posted on X. Like, what? What do you mean? That's just a letter. Anyways. Yeah, I don't know. Also, be sure to check out our website. Like I said, we got that new support us page if you're interested in joining the Patreon or donating via PayPal or checking out our affiliate links. Yep. If you're planning to buy a JR pass or a regional pass, you can do it through there and same price to you. Little benefit for us. That's right. Paul, what are we talking about next time? We're going to talk about what happens if you get sick while you're traveling in Japan. I don't know, man. Honestly, I never really thought about it all that much. I just assumed that everything was going to go fine. <laughs> I, I've like briefly thought about it and then been like, well, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Out of mind, you know. Right. But now I know. Yeah, it's a good thing to think about. So we're going to go into the details on how that works, how you might want to prepare, and what you'll want to do if, heaven forbid, something bad happens when you're in Japan. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.